Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clear Down Route, the Canadian Aviation and Space Exploration Podcast. My name is Danny Vicar, and joining me tonight is my co-host, Chris Johnson. How you doing today, Chris? Pretty good, Danny. Uh, how you doing this fine evening? Oh, I'm all right, you know, just trying to keep cool. It's a little bit colder outside, around 20 degrees or so, which is quite cool for this time of year. But uh, you get two screens going, laptop, light, and everything else for this podcast, and it gets hot really fast. <laughs> it's the, uh, the dangers of being a podcast host, my friend. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so what have you been up to lately? Well, obviously doing uh, some reading and research for this episode. Got, uh, got some content coming up. Been doing some uh, flight simming. Uh, the Waterloo Air Show we went to, obviously. And, and a few software projects I've got on the go on the side. Nice, nice. Yeah, what are, you, uh, what are you doing to kill time? Oh, just about the same. Uh, I've been playing some flight sim. Well, if you can call it playing, I guess it's simulating. Uh, and actually, I had my uh, practice flight test today, but we will not speak of it too much. Oh, no, didn't didn't go too well? Oh, no. I, I made it to the airplane, and I made it in the air, and we'll just leave it at that. Oh, no. <laughs> my instructor, Ashley, was pretty lenient in uh, letting me just go through the exercises anyway. But I'm pretty sure on a regular test, I would have been, well, we would have turned the airplane around and gone home. <laughs> gone, straight, gone straight back to the airport. Well, that's, that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Was, it was a little bit disappointing. But I have a few flights set up for a couple of weeks from now. So we'll be working on polishing off what needed to be polished off. And I'm hoping by the end of uh, September, I will be a licensed pilot. Well, uh, in, in happy news, what do we have in store for this uh, second episode? In news, we'll be looking at a very inspirational movie that turned 25 years old this year. Canada's Air Force and Navy are getting the royal treatment again. We'll be talking about some upcoming events, talk about an air show we recently attended, and closing off with some listener mail and shout-outs. Sounds like quite the episode we've got in store for everybody. Why don't we, uh, why don't we get into it with the news then? So the first article we have here comes from the Hamilton Spectator. Top Gun turns 25 years old. Oh my, Top Gun. Yeah. That, that movie, I wow, I can tell you that is a large part of the reason I am into aviation, is that movie right there. It's hard to believe it's been 25 years old. I mean, I, I did not realize it came out one year after I was born. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing is by the time we started watching it, but I, I first saw it probably when I was six or seven, my my dad was always into home theater stuff, and, and Top Gun was kind of the, every time a new device came out to play media, at that time you had to get Top Gun, whether it was the Laserdisc player or the DVDs or surround sound or subwoofers or whatever the case might be. And my dad, being into that stuff, always picked up the latest copy of, of Top Gun and sat us all down in the family room and said, watch this, and, and would turn on one of the chase scenes, you know? And... Uh, yeah, just a phenomenal movie. Obviously, a lot of great uh, airplane sequences. Yeah, for sure. So I guess he's going to be getting the 3D version, and I'm just about going to invite myself over. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he hasn't quite gotten onto the, the 3D bandwagon yet. In Canadian news, it seems the Air Force and Navy are getting the royal treatment. The article from the Star says that the Canadian forces have been rebranded with their old names, the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the Canadian Air Army. 
Yeah, this is uh, a recent move announced by the Canadian government that uh, the forces, uh, previously the Canadian forces, would be renamed to the original names used during World War One and Two. The rationale given is that with armed forces, it's great to have heritage and a connection to the past. So by giving them the royal name, you're reinstating a connection to the forces that fought so successfully during those wars. Now, on the other hand, there's, there's other critics who say, well, that's true, except the reason it's the Canadian forces is because when it was the Royal Canadian Air Force and the, the Royal Canadian Navy, the inter-service conflicts would create inefficiencies and, and waste a lot of the forces' resources, distracting them from their, their primary purpose of defending Canada. So that's kind of what, what's at stake here. And I did a little looking into it, and it's actually interesting. The original name for the forces was the Canadian Air Force. All the way back in 1918, they first formed a two-squadron system. It was a fighter squadron and a bomber squadron. It was the Canadian Air Force. They formed a second one in 1920. It's also called the Canadian Air Force, but that, that was the one that in 1924 was renamed the Royal Canadian Air Force. This was an initiative of Sir Willoughby Garnon's Guatkin. I, I hope I pronounced that right. He was a British lord. He was sent over here on military duty. He, he led the Canadian militia, which was our army back then during World War I. And he, he had actually argued that we should take the royal name. Australia had picked up the royal name for their forces a, a couple years earlier. And as a, a Commonwealth nation, you know, the argument succeeded and we, we picked up the name. So that's that's the, you know, annotated history of, of the name of it. Truthfully, I don't know really if it'll have much of an effect. I, I think the key is to make sure that whatever the forces are called, they're equipped and have what they need, right? Yeah, for sure. And quite frankly, when they amalgamated the forces in the 1960s, just because they have one name doesn't mean they're all played together. You know, you still have the divisions between the Navy, the Air Force, and the f Army, so just forcing them to be called the forces, I'm not sure if it did anything. Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously people on both sides of that. When we were at the Waterloo Air Show, there was a gentleman there, a, a veteran from the 70s, and I asked him, what were the divisions like in the forces at that time? Because uh, that was immediately after the merger. And he had said, you know, the, the divisions were still there. Those were the, the boat guys. We were the plane guys. We didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to talk to us. And, and even though we kind of had to go together, it didn't matter. There was still, you know, the guys that you worked with every day, the guys that went out on exercises and missions with every day, those, those were the guys that you trusted and, and those were the parts of the service that you had faith in. So it, it didn't seem from the on-the-ground perspective in, in that soldier's opinion that it, it mattered much. And again, I don't, I don't think the name matters much. What matters is that, that they're well-equipped. So we'll move on to a story from aviation.ca. Canada and Europe enhance aviation safety with new agreement. Now, it seems the European Union and the Canadian government have signed a bilateral agreement allowing each entity to sell and to trade in aviation goods in the other's territory without having to go through some more enhanced screening, um, if you will. 
as with any industry where there are standards in aviation, depending where you go, the standard is different. So when a Canadian company wanted to sell product, an aviation product somewhere in the European Union, not only did they have to pass the prerequisites here at home, but they also had to rely and hope that they will pass the prerequisites and the safety requirements of the European Union. So, so that increases a lot of the costs and a lot, increases the time to, to market for a lot of products, having to deal with two sets of regulations that you have to take care of. So this agreement, which is available from Transport Canada on their website, and we'll put a link in the show notes because the the website it's a little bit long. This agreement allows Canadian companies to sell products without being, or maybe not without being, checked by the European Union. But at least they know they only have to pass one requirement. There's a standard requirement between the two. Well, I mean that that sounds like a a good agreement on the face of it. Obviously, having a, a wider market for. Uh, Canadian technology and, and Canadian goods is always uh, beneficial for for Canadian companies. the The thing that kind of comes to mind for me in in this regard would be, in the past, there's been issues between the United States and and Europe regarding the various subsidies that governments offer airline manufacturers or or aviation or aerospace manufacturers. And what that does to the competitiveness of, say, a 747 versus an, Airbu- an Airbus product. So, so with the decreased trade barrier, are, are there any issues of subsidies where now a Canadian company is, is faced with competition from a European Union company that it can't compete with because Canada doesn't offer you know, similar subsidy? Or, or vice versa, if Canada has a subsidy for Bombardier that you know, a similar regional style jet manufacturer doesn't make in Europe, is it going to put some Europeans out of a job because of that? I don't think any of the subsidies received by any companies from their respective territory would really come into play here. I think the main issue at hand is that instead of having two sets of requirements that one needs to pass in order to sell in a Canadian product in the European Union, now they just have one standardized rule. They don't have to invest time and money in passing the requirements here at home and overseas. So it's it's less to do necessarily than with the or it's less to do with the trade tariffs and more to do with the, the standards applied to the sale of technology in a market. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds that sounds much more reasonable or or, or much less intrusive potentially. Yeah, for sure. I mean as I said, aviation in aviation, as with any industry, there are a lot of standards. And as with any standard, depending where you go, it's going to be different. So if you go down in the States, the standards are different. If you go in the, in the European Union, they're different. You go down to Australia, they're different. Even though it's a standard, standardized by a worldwide body, it's going to be different. So this is this should help Canadian businesses a lot. I, I would wonder, too, how often prior to this agreement the standards between the EU and, and Canada conflicted, making it even potentially impossible to market a particular product in, in both markets if the requirements put you know, too many constraints on the, the design of whatever you were building. So, yeah, this, you know what? Sounds great to me. I'm all on board. All right. Our next article here is from msnbc.com talking about the HTV2. That's the Falcon hypersonic technology vehicle that they've been testing with the U.S. military. Uh, It recently went out on its second test flight. There was a flight earlier, last year. 
And this flight went a little better. It succeeded in achieving its speed of Mach 20. It succeeded in achieving controlled flight for three minutes at those speeds. Uh, unfortunately, at that point, the computer took over and terminated the flight, rolled over and, and dove into the ocean. And that was the end of, of test flight two. But like I said, the engineering team is reporting that they've, they've made more progress than they did in the first flight and that it controlled itself at those speeds for up to three minutes. So what this means is that we're now getting to the point where hypersonic travel is, is starting to become a reality. There's, there's people who have craft now that you know, are achieving these speeds. And as a Canadian who spent hours and hours and hours traveling across the country in airplanes, and, and you know, we are a ways from traveling via this method, but it, it does hint at uh, where we're going with kind of suborbital and hypersonic travel. Now, if we take into account for the three minutes it traveled at Mach 20, that means it traveled roughly 1,000 kilometers, which is two-thirds the distance from Toronto to Winnipeg. So to make that distance in three minutes to a Canadian air traveler, that just sounds great. Now, this isn't uh, just... It, it didn't fly through the atmosphere, right? No, it's it's... You know, it's kind of an airplane space vehicle. It's got a lot in common with the original Gemini project and, and Mercury projects in that it takes off atop a rocket. I forget the, the type of rocket used for this launch. It pops up out of the atmosphere and then uses the energy from coming back down, the, the force of gravity pulling it down, and the lifting body effect underneath its fuselage to convert that into forward uh, momentum and to gain that, you know, Mach 20. So essentially, it's, it's not very different than a returning space shuttle. It just happens that this one, they're, they're trying to get a little more control out of it, trying to be able to maneuver it and, and really explore how to actually travel it at that speed, not just return from space on a ballistic trajectory. I guess that's its uh, main purpose right now, right, as a uh, replacement for an ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile? Yeah, well, more, more specifically, a replacement for some cruise missiles like the Tomahawk. The Tomahawk, as you know, is, is a very popular, was a very popular missile in the, the Gulf War era because of its ability to fly in, orbit around a target, or, or generally hang out in area waiting for commands, uh, and as well being very precise. So now what they'd like to be able to do is is not necessarily put things in harm's way and be able to launch these from the United States and reach anywhere in the world in, you know, 16 to, to 30 minutes. So so more the the hypersonic cruise missile idea, but certainly would probably replace ICBMs uh, as well. Now, did they figure out what exactly went wrong? I, I understood that... It, they just lost control like they did on the first one. It seems at some point during its re-entry, the telemetry either doesn't reach it or something happens, and they just it just kind of spins out of control. Yeah, in both cases, that's that's exactly what happened. It, it goes through its liftoff phase, then it goes into the, the re-entry phase, uh, and then it enters the glide phase, and that's, that's where it's lost contact both times. No word specifically what, what caused it in this case. The symptoms that that you see at the time is it just you know disappears, and and so it was even a day or two before the engineers could determine whether or not it had managed to control itself during flight or whether you know it was a complete failure and, and a ballistic reentry. So no specific reasons yet. I'm not too sure how much we'll hear about it, given that it is a, a military project. 
and, and they are fairly secretive about the details of it. But again, you know, for a dude uh, such as myself who's interested in that that suborbital and that space travel, liftoff of of a rocket to space is nine or ten minutes, and the three or four minutes to travel hypersonic that again puts you across Canada in in fifteen sixteen minutes. Pretty fantastic. What do you think the ticket prices would be? <laughs> oh, I can't even speculate. I, I don't even know what what kind of time frame we'd be looking at for those vehicles. It's it's not something I would ever expect to ride on. Certainly, it'll be long after the military's perfected them for, for delivering munitions. And that's the news for this episode. Next up, upcoming events. Okay, upcoming events for September involving air shows, airplanes, and other aviation treats in and around the southern Ontario area. The big one to mention, obviously, is the Canadian International Air Show happening at the Canadian Exhibition in Toronto, Ontario. That happens from September 3rd to 5th. There'll be a a show each of those days, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And the key performances here, the the kind of got to seize this year the snowbirds obviously there's going to be a u.s forces a10 warthog this is the big one here the first time ever this year there's a v22 osprey not only the first time at the canadian international air show this is the first time the osprey will be performing at any canadian air show after also after a a 20-year development period it's a long wait to see an aircraft Uh, that's the one i'm looking for of course as well the cf-18 demonstrators will be there the Royal Canadian Air Force Skyhawks Paris team will be there. They are an absolute must-see. Well, the Heritage Museum will be flying their Avro Lancaster. That That is a great-looking plane. I would recommend seeing that one as well. And uh, along with those, there's many other acrobatic and formation demonstrations. Unfortunately, due to security concerns, no static displays at this one. There's There's no way to get to the Island Airport or to Pearson, so it is purely flight line. That's a shame. Uh, it's a little too bad, but, you know... Good, good planes to see. Yeah, I'd love to see the V-22 Osprey. That might actually do it for me, push me over the edge and uh, make me go this year. I, we're just getting back from the cottage that weekend. Didn't think I'd be able to make it, but seeing an Osprey fly, oh, man. Hopefully they'll do a, a horizontal-to-vertical transition or, or vertical-to-transition or to horizontal transition. I, I, I would think that is a must, an absolute must. If you bring an Osprey, what else are you going to do with it? I can't see how you would not do that transition. I, I agree. And actually, you know, last year when I was at the, the air show, uh, the Canadian Coast Guard did a, a helicopter rescue where someone jumped into the lake and then they, they picked him up. So not saying for sure, but potentially the, the Osprey could be slated for a, a similar performance. Yeah, for sure. From what I remember last year, it was a whole uh, coordinated uh, Coast Guard and Navy effort. They had a ship there as well, and they had Electra flying around and dropping supplies to the people in the water and then the yep. helicopter coming up, pick him up. So that was quite the show. I forget which ship, but there's going to be a uh, ship this year as well parked off of the – or in the lake there. So if you're not into airplanes, uh, I don't know why you're listening, but there's also a boat there for you. Exactly. So the weekend after that, we've got the Windsor International Air Show. Now, they have a static display, which will be awesome. You'd be able to find an F-18 there, an F-15, a B-52. Can you just imagine walking into a B-52? I can I can imagine it after the 130, but I would still probably be amazed. Yeah, so, so that would be really great. They have one of my all-time favorite planes on static, 
the C-17 uh, is just so amazing. And then they've got the Skyhawks, Snowbirds, the CF-18, uh, a MiG-21 and a MiG-15. And these are all going to be doing air performances, as well as the uh, Lancaster that uh, Chris had mentioned that will be participating in Toronto. It'll be coming down to Windsor as well. Now, fun fact about the Avro Lancaster, Canada has one of only two left flying in the world. The second one is down in the United Kingdom. That's, uh, that definitely makes it a must-see then. So that, so that will be taking place in Windsor uh, the weekend of September 10th and 11th. The Snowbirds will also be performing over Gore Bay on Wednesday, September 14th. That's just off of Manitoulin Island, so if you happen to be in the area, you might be able to catch them there. And also, down in the States, the Reno Air Races are starting up September 14th to the 18th. Now, we did find out that there were two Canadians that participated last year, and currently we're trying to find out if there are any Canadian teams slated to represent uh, Canada the Reno Air Races this year. So those, t- those are taking place down in Reno, Nevada, from September 14th to 18th. Now, this past weekend, Chris and I attended the Waterloo Air Show down at the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo International Airport. We got to see a lot of great planes, both in the air and in, on static display. We got to go into a C-130 Hercules, and uh, Chris also went up into the cockpit, so that was awesome. Yeah, just a fantastic air show. Some of the, the highlights for me, quickly on the on the static displays were the Vintage Wings, uh, the yellow planes brought down by Vintage Wings Canada. They had the Harvards, they had the Tiger Moth there. What else did they have from their collection? Uh, just so many great vintage airplanes. I think they had a Chipmunk there as well. Yeah, and, and the yellow you know, the yellow liveries on them, just so stunning and, and stood out right away as soon as you got to the air show. Again, let me mention the 130. As, as Dan mentioned, we got to take a tour through it. It was a U.S. Air Force AC-130H part of the Niagara Falls unit for doing transport and heavy lifting. And they were kind enough to take everybody through a tour. The lineup at some points was was a couple hours long to take the walkthrough. And then at the end of the walkthrough, they would move groups through in fives or six to take a look through the cockpit and explain some of the systems and, and mission profiles that the aircraft would go through. And I was fortunate to sit in the pilot seat. So that was... Oh, poor thing. Yeah, it was really unfortunate that we had to wait so long and I got to sit in the pilot seat of an AC-130. And little known fact, it's... I mean, it's obviously one of my favorite airplanes ever. How not... Uh, how could it not be? It's it's so beautiful. So it was a real, real treat to have the 130 there and, and to be able to see it firsthand and, and pretend for a couple minutes that, you know, I was the pilot of one of those things. It's a, it's a great machine, and the guys did a really good job explaining what everything did down to the uh, the loo, as our friends from yes, the Pond yes. say. <laughs> that, uh, that was actually one of my surprising features. Danny and I were standing there, and I was looking at some of the appointments in the airplane, wondering what, what everything was. You know, why is this object here? Why is that light there? And noticed a hand sanitizer, one of the push pumps for hand sanitizer, and asked, oh, I wonder why that's there. And neither of us could figure it out until shortly afterwards when uh, someone had asked one of the flight crew, what is, what is this hand sanitizer for? And he popped down the wooden board. It, it was hinged and had chains, and right behind it looked like an outhouse, John, right, right out of the Canadian woods. And there it was in the back of a 130, and we got our answer about the hand sanitizer pretty quickly. So that was a great plane to see. Obviously, the, the T-33s, 
and and related airplanes. The you know the planes from the the jet plane museum, the Vampire, were were all just fantastic to see up close and and fawn over. As for the performance, like I said, the Snowbirds always amaze. I've seen those dozens of times, but every single time you just are amazed at that, that, that their skill. And and the one that really blew me away actually was the the Skyhooks parachute team. They were just oh, yeah. fantastic. The the things they were doing, I mean, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll jump out of a perfectly good plane, you know, with a canopy above me, and I'll just float down to the ground. Oh, there's another guy next to me. Why don't we lock legs and fall together? Well, and, and to get into the leg lock, you have to climb down the, the control lines of the other guy's parachutes. You have to land on top first and then shimmy your way down into this, you know, very intimate position. And and they had some points where they had three of the guys, and, and, you know, their parachutes were now forming one giant parachute above the three of them. It was amazing. I've never seen a parachute go upside down before. But yeah, yeah, they they were it, it 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 just blew both of us away. It's just okay, you know, you've seen you you think you've seen everything, and then you see these guys with their parachutes, and they hold this formation that seems like they're going to hit the ground. They hold it down to you know probably fifty feet off the ground. They finally let go, and they go their separate ways. But it's just, it was just just incredible. Absolutely. What uh, what did you like? Well, I, I'm always a big fan of the F-18. Uh, the F-18 demonstration team, I mean, uh, when it takes off and it starts doing a roll at slow speed with everything down, it's just the amount of thrust that's there. I think I think during the show we said this a couple of times, but it just seems like the F-18 saying, who needs wings for lift? I've got thrust. <laughs> yeah, the, the vertical climb on takeoff is is an impressive one. For sure. And, and I was a fan of the F-16 demo as well, although we do have a, a good discussion go, going on that. We did notice quite a difference between the Canadian show and an American show, um, and that's making me want to actually go to a full-on American air show. Indeed. The the American demonstration with the Viper, it, it was tuned to some very heavy guitar rock in your face. I, I thought we would be bombed at any moment. And yeah. the Canadian one, the F-18... I, th- I think it was Annie Lennox, maybe, that was the soundtrack. I, c- I couldn't identify the music. It was very New Age. And there was some dance music at times as well. Yeah, I mean, it did have some hard-pounding rock at times, but it, it seems like there's there's quite the, the, the difference between what the Canadian performers and uh, put put a uh, focus on and what what, Amer- what the American performers do. I mean, even during the Snowbirds, right, they, they've got really sort of calm music and, and the announcers are telling you, you know, look at the look, look how, how well they're flying. You need precision flying. They're kind of just gliding through the air. Yeah. And then you get to the F-16. Yeah, the, the Canadian one. Look at the grace and, and wonder of powered flight. And the American, the F-16 demonstration. Whoosh! Yeah. Are you ready for the sound of freedom? I, I, I mean, you know. I noticed that as well last year at the, the Canadian International Air Show. Obviously, there's a lot of American demonstrations as well. And, and there will be this year as well. And I, I like them both. I mean, both the grace of flight and the ability to vertically climb out of sight very quickly. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a great contrast, and and uh, they they both make for good shows. You know, don't hope nobody takes offense to uh, us compa- comparing them like this. But that was just just quite you know look at looking back on the uh, air shows I've attended and where there were American and Canadian performers, you see that that contrast between the Canadian way 
our, and the American way. So yeah, still now, put on right a good show. The the other one too um, that I really liked about the F sixteen demonstration versus say the F eighteen is F sixteen did go supersonic for us while while it was there. To see a jet go supersonic and to hear a jet go supersonic as it goes by the flight line and and the disconnection between the noise and and the jet. That, I mean, is a real treat, obviously. Um, yeah, I definitely think you had it right the first time. We first saw it go supersonic, then we heard it after it was on the other side of the runway. And and it's eerie, too, because the, the F-16 is at the end of the runway, and it sounds like there's a second jet following it that you just can't see. It's a very disjointed yeah. kind of experience. That was one of my favorite parts as well, was the mm-hmm. supersonic. So mm-hmm. a, a great show. Obviously, we talked to a lot of great people at the show, uh, both attending and, and people manning booths there, and a lot of great plane talk. Yeah, we actually uh, spoke to a pilot from a Canadian Forces Dash 8100, uh, which is used for training the operators of radar and subsurface, subwater surface detection equipment. He, and he's based out of Winnipeg. We actually have, uh, uh, we got a good interview with him. And he he turned out to have quite quite a bit of experience in the in the air force. Yeah, he was a little more than your your trainer pilot, I guess. Yeah, for sure, he had a lot of experience. Flew for the Snowbirds, and actually, you know what? Why don't we just let him do the talking? Play the interview for you now, and we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, hi, uh, my name is Tim Rawlings, Captain Tim Rawlings. I'm a pilot with uh, Four Two Squadron, uh, City of Winnipeg, based in Winnipeg. Basically, Winnipeg. Flying the Dash Eight. Now, this one's got a little bit of a bigger nose on it. Yeah, this airplane is a uh, training aircraft, and you're right. It's, it's a modified Dash A100, and uh, we train uh, two types of uh, people in the back. Uh, it's not a pilot trainer. It's a navigator and uh, ASOP trainer. Okay. Now, the ASOPs, uh, they basically do maritime surveillance and uh, target prosecution. So what that means is uh, maritime surveillance is surface and subsurface, ships and submarines, okay. and the prosecution execution part is uh, setting up uh, um, uh, schemes to drop torpedoes and, and whatnot. Okay. Now, the tools of their trade are radar and computer, and you can see by the size of the nose that the radar is in the nose, and the information that the radar gathers is fed into the computers in the back. There's six uh, working consoles in the back. Okay. And what we do is we fly profiles uh, that enable them to develop the skill sets that are required for them to move on to an operational platform such as an Aurora uh, Seeking or Cyclone at some point in the future when the Cyclone comes online. Okay, so is this the first stage of their training? This is the first stage. uh, In terms of the operational qualifications, this is the first stage of their training. And once they successfully pass and meet all the performance objectives on this course, they're given wings, and and then they move on to uh, operational training. So I guess they're just the operators in the back. That's right. That's right, yes. Yeah, this this is not a pilot trainer. Okay. And are you one of the pilots? I'm a pilot, yeah. Excellent. And how long have you been flying it? Uh, This particular plane I've been flying for about four years now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And... uh, it's a nice airplane. It's uh, it's easy to fly well. Uh, it has a very positive feel. It's a Canadian product, obviously. Yep. Um, and uh, I, uh, I've flown the Tudor, and it reminds me a lot of the Tudor, actually. Really? A Dash 8 size yeah. reminds you of a just, tiny little well, Just the way it handles. I mean, it's much slower than the Tudor, obviously, yeah. but uh, the way it handles is a very positive uh, 
feel to the controls, okay. and uh, the ability to fly it well is uh, quite easy. Okay. Yeah, which is good for guys like me. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess the guys in the back too. Keeps yeah, yeah. nice and level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, don't have to use those uh, bags yes. too much. Yes, no problem. Exactly. So, how did you get into the? Are you in the right seat, left seat? Uh, well, I'm I'm the aircraft captain on okay. this airplane. Um, but in the military, we fly, whether you're the aircraft captain or AC, whether or not you're the AC or not, you bounce around between the left and right seat, okay. which is, uh, it's a departure from the way it's done and on, uh, on the civilian side, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the captain uh, civilian side, of course, is always in the left seat. Okay. So, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about your background in aviation. Did you always want to fly? Or? Oh, yeah. I can't, uh, I, was, I was telling my partner, Crime Hero, today, uh, I grew up in Barrie. And uh, I would have all the air shows mapped out for the summer, and I would drive to every single one of them. It was all, I mean, when I was a kid, it was all I wanted to do. I, you know, in some ways, it was nice, because I was really focused and knew what I wanted to do and how to get it done. Um, and so I joined, uh, joined the Air Force back in uh, 89, 88-89. Got my wings in uh, 91 on helicopters, and I flew helicopters for about uh, three and a half years. Okay. Uh, and then I went to Moose Jaw, and I instructed on the uh, jet okay. in Moose Jaw for about uh, almost three years. Uh, and then I was uh, I, I got the opportunity to try out for the Snowbirds. Okay. Uh, I made the team, and I flew with the Snowbirds for the 99 and 2000 show season. Congratulations. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was quite an honor to represent Canada as well and travel all across uh, not only Canada but the U.S. Um, I left the Air Force for a period of time after that, and I went to fly for Air Canada. Okay. Uh, and I still, I'm on a leave of absence from Air Canada. Um, and I, uh, after I was laid off, re-enrolled in the military, and uh, I've done uh, a variety of staff work, uh, and then uh, found my way back uh, into a cockpit, flying the Dash 8 to finish out my Rake Force career. Okay. And now I'm a Class A, uh, or part-time. Uh, reservist flying the airplane at, uh, at 4 2. Oh, wow. You've got yeah. quite the experience in the Air Force of flying. Uh, you know what? I've been really fortunate. I, uh, not only within the Air Force of flying a wide variety of aircraft and getting you know some uniquely military experiences, but you know, flying in general, I've uh, 